we, we know that chasing trends, over time, chasing trends is a losing battle. Uh, some of you in this room could testify to that because in days past, you wore bell-bottom jeans. And there are photographs of that somewhere. Um, some of you, I'm not going to name names though, but some of you had big hair. I'm just going to say it, call it what it is. There are pictures of me in eighth grade wearing hammer pants. You know hammer pants were? Those big balloon pants? Yeah, they're somewhere. I try, I try to get those photos destroyed. It's, uh, skinny jeans? Are we there yet? I mean, we're getting there. Like, we're getting to the place where you're going to look back and go, what was happening? What? And listen, just in case we miss it, our children and grandchildren will shame us for what we've done and following trends. And some of you are in denial, but you just got to embrace it, okay? It is what it is. Chasing trends is always a losing battle. You know, the Christian's relationship to the world is delicate. I mean, we recognize that we are here, right, on earth as followers of Jesus for a specific purpose, to bring glory to God, right, to seek to make and mature disciples of Jesus. And as we live out, right, that calling, we interact with unbelievers, right? We, we befriend them, we continue relationships with them, we uh, love them. But at the same time, there's a very clear uh, teaching in the Bible that as Christians, we are distinct from the world. There's a need for us to be different. You remember that Jesus said in John 15, you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it. You know, Jesus says, you're here, but you're not part of it. I have chosen you out of the world, and yet you still have a a mission to live with distinction. You know, the thing about worldliness, and I tease about the fashion, but the thing about worldliness is in our culture today, um, it's really an anything goes kind of a, a culture. And the, it's really bizarre, but in the first century, Gnosticism, the particular heresy that seems to be influencing the Apostle John writing 1 John, it actually ended up with a practical ethic that said, you know, you can just do whatever you want. But, you know, the idea was that because you have this special secret religious knowledge, um, that you are therefore spiritual and enlightened and saved. And physical life, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you behave or what you wear, how, what you say, right? what you do on Friday night, what you do over the week in, in, at work and entertainment, whatever. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you have the secret knowledge. And so practically, Gnosticism ended up saying anything goes. Now, our culture, we get there a different way, but our culture still says that same practical ethic. Listen, as long as you're literally not murdering someone, you can do whatever you want, right? And as we often remind ourselves, we breathe American air, which means we are a part of this culture, which means there will also be a temptation for us to follow the culture or to chase what everyone else is chasing. Christianity is different because true knowledge of God Right? True knowledge of God transforms us, and therefore, it transforms our relationship to the world. So this morning, as we get into this passage, you need to come in with your, with your eyes open on a particular question. How are you influenced by those who don't follow Jesus? How are you influenced by worldliness? John uses this term, the world, and, and thinking about you know, following the world, it, it means rebellion against God, the, the world as it is in rebellion against God. So you want to ask the question, how am I influenced by the world? In what ways might I be chasing what everyone else chases? Now, the structure of this paragraph, and it's an interesting paragraph because there's two parts to it. Verses 12 to 14 is like a little pastoral poem. 
And it, 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 it itself is broken up into two parts, as we'll see. But it's a little poem where John says, it's like a, a reminder of what is true about us in Christ. And then the second part of the paragraph is the punch. It's like, okay, here we go. And then there's the command, all right? We're going to walk through it together and not just, again, understand it, but see how it really impacts where we live on a daily basis. So picking it up in verse 12, you know, we remember that John has given us comfort uh, in the gospel. He's talked about how, you know, this knowledge, true knowledge of Jesus and the gospel actually changes how we live. So he's just continuing that same theme. And here, watch his little pastoral poem in verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. If you just pause there, verse 12, uh, John uses this phrase, little children, as a term of endearment for the whole church family. So it doesn't matter how old you are, you are little children in the passage today, right? And so John, as uh, an, an elder apostle, right, as a church planter, as a minister of the gospel, he... he refers to the church with these terms of endearment. He loves the church. And we just got to remember that that love is actually a a reflection of God's love for us. So when we get to the warning this morning, we just need to remember that 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 warning is motivated by God's love and care for us, right? So he says, I'm writing to you little children. And then he says, since or for or because I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. It's really important we understand this. Our forgiveness is already a reality because of our faith in Jesus. So he is not saying, don't be worldly so that you can be forgiven. He's saying, I'm writing to you, little children, because you already are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven, and it's not by virtue of your efforts and obedience. It's not by virtue of cleaning yourself up. It's not by virtue of giving money to the church or church attendance or, or missions trips or any kind of religious things we could do. He says, I am writing to you since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. It's just a statement of fact. If you have put your faith in the name of Jesus Christ, meaning you've trusted in his death and resurrection, you are forgiven of your sins, period. That's true. And so he starts off with this pastoral encouragement. Hey, listen, little children, you got to know you are forgiven on account of his name. All right, that's, that's a rock-solid truth that's not going anywhere. Then in verse 13, he goes on with this little poem. He says, I'm writing to you fathers... Because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Let's pause there in the middle of verse 13. Who are the fathers? Probably he's writing to simply the older generation in the church. But as he identifies this truth about them, it no doubt, it no doubt should apply to younger believers as well. So it's something that younger believers will grow into, no doubt. But he says, listen, I'm writing to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Who is the one who was from the beginning? Well, he's talking about what he references in 1 John 1, 1, the one who was from the beginning, right? That, what, we have, uh, what was from the beginning, what we have seen, what we have uh, heard, what we have beheld with our eyes and touched with our hands. He's saying Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same author here, right? John's saying, I, I, am, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have already come to know the eternal one, Jesus Christ. And that's, it's interesting, this knowledge, it's not this secret club that only a few people can get into. This knowledge being spread by the apostles is a knowledge of Jesus that, that starts at a given moment, but then it continues on throughout our lives. 
Like that's the, the, the grammar there reflects that. It brings that out. Yes, I, the fathers, you've come to know Jesus, the eternal one, the one from the beginning. And that knowledge has real life implications. It's not, I've come to know him, I'm forgiven, so now I can just do whatever I want because I got to get out of jail free card. No, you have come to know and are still in relationship with the one who is from the beginning. Again, maybe highlighting the older generation here, but no doubt hoping that the younger Christians are going to jump on board. And then thirdly, in verse 13, he says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. There's a play on words here in Greek. It's hard to express in English. But I'm writing to you, young men, because you have manhandled the evil one. That's my way of doing it, okay? That's kind of more like the original. Now, he's not just talking to young men. But he is highlighting here maybe the younger generation in the church. And he says, listen, young people, he says, you have been victorious over Satan. How? By faith. This is already true, he says. I'm writing to you because, little children, your sins are forgiven, right, on account of his name. I'm writing to you, older generation, because you have come to know genuinely Jesus, the eternal one. I'm writing to you, younger people, because you have really, in real time, in real space, victory over Satan. Same grammar there, past event with ongoing effects. Okay, you have victory over Satan. How? By virtue of faith in Jesus. Because Jesus has defeated Satan, we are connected with Christ, therefore we have that victory and so he's, he's encouraging the church. He's saying, listen, this is what we have in Christ. Then in verse 14, he goes around the horn again. So same three, same three groups, and he goes around one more time. Watch verse 14. I have written to you children, same category, because you have come to know the Father. Not only are you forgiven of your sins on account of his name, but you are now in relationship with God the Father because of the Son, through the work of the Spirit. He says, I have written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. There he just flat out repeats it for the fathers. Some of us as we age, we need that. Amen. We need that repetition. Okay. It's good for us. Okay. We got to have it. And then he says, I have written to you young men because you are strong. God's word remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. Now there's maybe a little added focus there at the very end of the poem here. Notice what he says to the young people. He says, you are strong. He is not talking about physical strength. He's talking about spiritual strength here. And he says, listen, young believer in Jesus, you are strong in Christ. You have provision spiritually. How? Why? Because God's word, he says, remains in you. And I love this. You know, too often we think of God's word as uh, static, or as, you know, outside of us, right? Like this is a thing and we can read it, we can memorize it, we study it, we should do all those things, right? Absolutely. But did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, as you learn from his word, God actually implants his word in you. And so he says, listen, young, young people, you got to know this. You are equipped with spiritual strength because God's word is and continues to remain in you. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're going through a struggle, a difficulty, and, a, and a, just a random verse that you haven't read in a long time just pops to your mind? That's the Spirit of God using the Word of God in you to lead you spiritually. And you go, where does that come from? Well, it comes from God. It's His work. This is what God is doing in Christ in us right now. This is what we have in Christ. And so in this little poem, right, the Apostle John, he just says, I just got to encourage you. This is what you have. Now, if you're paying close attention, you might have noticed in verse 12 and 13, he says, I am writing to you. And then in verse 14, he says, I have written to you. And probably the idea there is that um, 
yes, this is the current content of this letter, but also he's further explaining the principles of the gospel that they already have received. And so scholars can't go much further than that. We don't know any more of the details. Maybe there was another letter. Maybe he's just talking about the stuff already in chapter 1. Either way, he says, these things are true of you if you are a follower of Jesus. If you are a true part of the church, these things are true of you. Now, here's the deal. We need this encouragement. (coughs) Excuse me. We need this encouragement to prepare to battle the world. We need this encouragement to prepare us to walk in distinction from the world. This is what we have in Christ. And I'm just going to go over again these categories and think about how they apply to us and maybe why we struggle to believe them. Again, number one, the first thing he says, and we need to just, we need to own this, is that in Christ we actually have the forgiveness of our sins. You'll be tempted to doubt this. We'll be tempted to doubt it when we fail. Because when we fail, we focus on our sin and our failure and maybe through our own condemnation or maybe through someone else's condemnation, we feel that guilt and we'll, and we'll feel like we're not forgiven. But brothers and sisters, little children, you got to know this. We have forgiveness on account of his name. No one can take that away from you. No one can rob you of that assurance and confidence that we have in Christ. We might actually doubt that we have forgiveness of sins when we're proud and think we don't need it. And so there's maybe a dark side on the other side of where, well, you're doing really great in your spiritual walk, and all of a sudden you begin to think, you know what? Jesus came for them, not for me. And that's a problem, too. We need to remember, guess what? We have forgiveness of sins because we need forgiveness of sins. I just love that song we sang, Lord Have Mercy, because that last song, because that song really walks us through that process of acknowledging our sin, but then not wallowing in it. But, but kind of settling in that triumphant note that Jesus is our God, Redeemer, King. And the Lord does have mercy on us. If you're here this morning, maybe you're watching online, and you are not a follower of Jesus, meaning you've never repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I have to tell you, you have no guarantee of the forgiveness of your sins. You'll be left to answer for your sin alone. And God's love for you is clear in that you're hearing this message. And there's this genuine reality that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have forgiveness of sins on account of his name. You can't find it anywhere else. You can't find forgiveness in a church. We can't provide it for you. We can't do something on your behalf. You can't do it yourself. Your family can't do it for you. But Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that on account of his name, you can be forgiven. We're in the business of glorifying God by making and maturing disciples. And so if you have questions about that, I mean, I would love to talk to you about what it means to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, secondly, we also learn here in this little pastoral poem that as believers, we have knowledge, true knowledge of the Father and the Son. Did you notice how he talked about both? The one who is from the beginning, he talked about that. And then also we have knowledge of the Father. And again, this is all like John just kind of coming at the Gnosticism and, you know, kind of winking like you guys don't really have true knowledge. He's reclaiming that concept of of genuine knowledge. But John's focus is not on knowledge as a past event or on information to pass a test or, you know, take a, a theology class. But he says this knowledge is ongoing and transformational. He says, you have come to know. 
the one who was from the beginning, or you have come to know the Father. That means that not only are you aware of who God is and growing in that knowledge, but it continues to impact our lives. In Christ, we have knowledge of the Father and the Son. You might doubt this. You might doubt this when you feel distant or alone. You might doubt it when you feel distant from God, and sometimes we feel far from God because we're making sinful choices, and we know we need to do business, we know we need to repent, and we need to take steps of obedience. You might doubt that you know God so when you're struggling in that sense. But we also might doubt when we just feel lonely. And in certain seasons of our life, Sometimes we feel very alone, even though we might be surrounded by a fam, a large family or by many friends, right? We might just feel alone. But you need to know, if you're a follower of Jesus, no one can take away the fact that you are in relationship to the Father and the Son through the Spirit. We have and continue to have this true knowledge of the Father and the Son. And this is a work that God is doing in every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not for an exclusive subgroup there in Turkey or Asia Minor in the first century. This, this knowledge is meant to be available to everyone because of God's grace. Thirdly, what else do we have in Christ? We have spiritual strength because His Word dwells in us. If you're a follower of Jesus, not just for the younger generation, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you are strong in the Lord. He is your strength. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this point in uh, Corinthians where he talks about how when I am weak, then I am strong, right? That my weakness actually magnifies the strength of God. And so even though we are not strong in and of ourselves, because we are connected to Christ, we are genuinely spiritually strong. I just got to remind you, you know, sometimes we get a little wigged out about like Satan and demons. We've seen too many horror movies and all that. You ever look in the Gospels about how demons react around Jesus? They're running scared like a bunch of little wusses. Because compared to Christ, that's exactly what they are. And that's kind of the, the, the tone here. You know, John's like, listen, you are strong in Christ. You, you have this provision. And he links it, I believe he links it to that idea of God's word dwelling in you. Because God's word takes up residence in us, and as we grow in our uh, knowledge of it, the Spirit uses it to change us, to help us be discerning, make right, make right decisions and good choices, right? All of that. So we have God's word in us. We are equipped to battle with the evil one. We are equipped to navigate a world that is under the influence of Satan, right? You're equipped for that. And again, no one can take that away from you, which leads to the fourth way we, we are, in, uh, what we have in Christ. The fourth thing we have in Christ is victory over Satan. Victory over Satan. Not just spiritual strength in general because his word remains in us, but actual victory over Satan. Listen, you might doubt that you have strength because, well, left to ourselves, we don't. And you might doubt that we have victory over Satan because, well, we see evil around us and in us often. And when we see or experience evil, often it's we see it in others or we experience it from others. This could be on the large scale corporately or on the micro scale just personally. But when we see evil, we might get discouraged. And we might think, you know what, there's not really anything happening. Or Satan's winning or there's no real victory here. But John says, don't forget, we have, have and continue to have victory over the evil one. We also might doubt that we have victory over Satan just when we go through trials. And sometimes we're like, God, where are you? You know, I feel like all, all that's happening right now is I'm suffering. And we might doubt 
God's care for us and genuine victory over Satan in the gospel. We might, we might doubt that because of a trial that we're going through. But John says, listen, my little children, fathers, right, young people, you need to listen up. You are forgiven. You have the knowledge of the Father and the Son. You have spiritual strength. His word dwells in you. And you have real victory over the evil one. Now, all of that in and of itself is great encouragement, right? I mean, there's a lot there. But all of that is the platform, the foundation to build into the command of verse 15. So we get to verse 15, and now it's like, okay, equipped with that knowledge, let's go. And where are we going? Well, watch verse 15. There John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Just stop right there, okay? This is the daily battle for every single Christian. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, what does he mean by the things in the world? You know what he means. The things. You know, like the things. The stuff that people want, that everybody's chasing. Talk about chasing those trends, right? It's, it's the stuff. It's the grades. It's the friends. It's the fashions. It's the house. It's the, the cars. It's the phone. It's the whatever it is, the career achievement. It's the, the political victory. It's the market value. It's the retirement villa. I don't know what it is, but it's the things, right? So all those things that everybody else is chasing in rebellion against God, they're finding their value and worth in them, right? World for John means the world in rebellion against God. So when we, th- when we see the world in rebellion against God and we see people in rebellion against God living for those things alone, just for the sports, just for the entertainment, just for the money, just for the job, all that stuff, right? When all that happens, when we see it on display, John says, here's what you got to know. You got to know that you'll be tempted to love it because they love it. You'll be tempted to find your value in it because they find their value in it. You'll be tempted to try to seek satisfaction in it because everybody's trying to be satisfied by all this stuff. And so he comes out point blank and he says, dear, dear, beloved Christian, he says, because you are forgiven, because you have knowledge, true knowledge of the Father and the Son, because you have spiritual strength and his word dwells in you, because we have victory over Satan, do not love the world. And listen, there's, there's a certain aspect of the history of the American church where this passion for uh, not loving the world can get sideways and we can misunderstand what he means by it and just think we're supposed to isolate ourselves or be weird. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying isolate yourself from the world or go live on a compound somewhere. But he is saying this, there is a daily reality that you have to choose to not love the world or the things in the world. There's no compatibility there. Don't love the wrong thing. He goes on in verse 15, He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Sometimes the apostles, you know, they're in a pastoral tone. They can be very like encouraging and accommodating and talk about, you know, we need encouragement. We need to grow. We struggle. Sometimes Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And I'm struggling, you know, but I have victory in Christ, all that. Sometimes there's accommodation there. John leaves no middle ground here. (laughs) 
No middle ground. He says, if you, listen, as I says it, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, meaning I find my fulfillment or am trying to find my fulfillment in all these things that everybody else is chasing, right? In rebellion against God. If that's what I'm doing, I'm loving the world. If anybody loves the world, then the conclusion must be the love of the Father is not in him. By love of the Father, he means love for the Father. It's an either or. You either are, are seeking after, valuing most, and finding satisfaction in the world, or you are seeking after, right, loving most, valuing most, and finding satisfaction in God. It's one or the other. And, and John says, don't, don't allow yourself to believe the lie that there's middle ground. Yeah, but that's a little extreme, don't you think? And honestly, couldn't we just like love God and value God sometimes? And then sometimes we can love the world because, hey, nobody's perfect, right? I love God on Sundays, kind of. You know, I love God on Wednesdays, maybe. Or in the morning when I'm reading his word, I could love him. But then, you know, Friday night, come on, let's just relax a little bit. It's so uptight. I mean, can I just, with my, well, it's my bank account. I don't fool around with that. You know, I'm building an inheritance for my offspring, for crying out loud. You know, there's my grades. The grades, they affect the rest of my life. I mean, you know, every day people look at me and make judgments based on how I look. I mean, come on. Just, isn't it okay for us to love the world a little? And John says, listen, you have what you need in Christ. We have it. And we are equipped to navigate this world. You don't need that stuff to satisfy you. On their best day, those are good gifts from God that can be turned into false gods, right? On our worst day, we're just chasing them because everybody else is. And John says, there's no middle ground. If, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John doesn't want us to play with fire. He's warning us here. Don't love the wrong thing. Verse 16, he continues to explain why this is such an issue. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So he says, don't love the wrong thing, and specifically, don't love the wrong thing because they're incompatible. Because the stuff the, in rebellion against God, chasing all this stuff, that is not from the Father. It's just from the world, meaning it is satanic, right? It's under the influence of the evil one. So don't kid yourself into thinking, well, some of this stuff is just okay. Like, no, you love God. That's what you love. That's what you chase after. And the rest of this we see as gifts from God to be used for his glory, for his ends. And so when he explains in verse 16, he says, listen, for everything in the world, all this stuff in rebellion against God, and then he gives three categories. And these are familiar to many of us, but they're worth some thoughtful reflection. Because as he just says, you want to know what the things are? Let's talk about the things. Then he breaks it down. He says, for the, everything in the world, and then he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. Let's unpack those. First of all, he says everything in the world, namely the lust of the flesh. What's the lust of the flesh? This is appetite stuff, okay? This is where people are over here in the world, and they're saying, if you want it, you should have it. Go get it. So this could be uh, chasing sexual immorality. This could be chasing food and gluttony and drink and, and alcoholism and drunkenness and all this and drug addiction. It's like all that. It says, you know, the world says if you want it, nobody should really be able to tell you you shouldn't be able to go get it. So if you want it, the lust of the flesh says go get it. 
right? That's, that's over here. And listen, if, um, if you're not aware, like our culture is big into that, right? Like we, that's a big thing for us right now. But we're not of the world. We've been chosen out of the world. And so John says, don't love the wrong thing. Don't love what you're hungry for. Don't love what you're hungry for. Um, it's not often. I mean, we value, we value freedom so much as a culture, and rightly so. It's a blessing to be used for God's glory. But there is just a little bit of a, a dark side of that love of freedom where we just think, you know what? If I can have it, I should have it. We are the nation that invented the buffet. All right, can I get amen? Um, they're not sanitary. That's another thing. But anyway, you know, it's like we, we, we invented the drive through Like we invented, uh, you know, it's just, you just got to acknowledge it for what it is. And we talk, we talk about sexual temptation a lot, and rightly so, because that's a big part of our culture. But we probably should talk about the alcohol, the food, the drug addiction as well. Because if we're chasing these things that we have an appetite for, right, just like everybody else, it's a problem. Because John says, everything in the world, this lust of the flesh, the stuff you just want because you want it, like that right there, that's not from the Father. And by an example, commentators and scholars will often say, you know, you see this on display in the garden in Eden when Eve was tempted, right? And when, when Eve looked at that fruit, she was hungry for it, right? It was the lust of the flesh. And it was created by God for His glory, but it was meant to be pursued by His means, right? With His direction, under His will. And Eve just, she was hungry for it. And Satan was like, you just, don't you just want that? It would taste so good. You realize Satan will do that to you. He'll say, you want that. Don't you just, you just want it. If you just, if you could just eat that, if you could just drink like that, if you could just have that, it would make you happy. It will satisfy you. It's a lie. Second category the lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. This isn't so much the physical appetite as it is the mental appetite. This is where it's actually you see something and you covet it. All right? You actually desire to have it because you're seeing someone else having it and you're jealous of what they're experiencing or what you think they're experiencing. And so you, you covet what they own. You covet uh, their uh, relationship. You covet their money. You covet their belongings. It's the lust of the eyes. Everywhere we look, it's like, oh, I want that. I wish I had that. Um, we live in the, the world of advertising, the age of advertising, where everywhere we look, somebody's telling us, hey, look at this. You should buy this because this will make you happy. That's lust of the eyes. It's, it's an appeal to, to, again, our, our mental desire, where we decide we want that because we see someone else has it. In this category, again, with Eve in the garden, you know, she saw, Genesis 3, 6, she saw that it was good to look at. Like, it looked good. So some people think that f- the fruit was an apple, you know, I, I don't know. If you like apples, sure. Right? We don't know what fruit it was, but whatever it was, it looked good to her. And listen, Satan's going to use this in your life. He'll use it to try to derail you by having you distracted by what you see. And so there is a a real need here to guard our eyes in this sense, where we recognize 
if I'm not careful, what I'm looking at can cause me to covet it. And again, that could be expressed in a sexual immorality way. It could be expressed in materialism, in greed. It could be expressed in discontentment in relationships. Again, social media, everybody's got the perfect life, the perfect whatever. And you're looking at all that and you're thinking, I wish I had that. I want that. I need that. And that is the lust of the eyes. Those things can be good gifts. But when we treat them as an end in and of themselves, they become those false gods. And so John says, that's not from God. That's from the world. The lust of the flesh, the appetite, physical appetite, and the lust of the eyes, right? The, the mental appetite, things we see coveting what we have. You might just ask the question, are you an easy target for advertisers? You know, we all are easy targets for advertisers in some ways. So you just, you just might think about which ads are the ones that catch your eye. Um, I remember when we were first, our family was first growing, and all of a sudden I'm getting all these emails about diapers and wipes, okay? <laughs> like when I was in college... Some, that would have been weird if I had gotten those emails. But as a young father, I was like, what? There's a sale? What? I only, what? Costco sells diapers? Like my, you know, because at certain points in our life, we're sensitive to different kinds of advertising. That's true generically, but you got to know that that's also true with regard to temptation. At certain phases of your life, you will be more likely to be tempted in certain ways. And so there's a, t- there's a time in your life when an advertisement for a retirement community somewhere is not going to, it's going to bounce right off of you. You'll think I'm bulletproof, but you're going to get to an age in your life. You're going to go, wait a minute, that's looking pretty good. How much does that actually cost? I need that. You got to watch. We just have to watch our eyes, which means watch how we respond to what we see, right? Don't create an environment where you allow yourself to, to just want, to just chase, to just be jealous of others and covet what others have. The third category here in verse 16 is, and in the CSB it says, the pride in one's possessions. Some translations will have the boastful pride of life, okay, uh, uh, baseless arrogance in life. The same term is used uh, by John in, in 1 John chapter 3 with regard to possessions. That's why the CSB goes in the direction of possessions. Uh, I, I liked one, actually one dictionary said, it's talking about um, haughty consumerism, okay? So uh, baseless pride in consumerism. Like you have this pride that's not really, it's not warranted or justified, but you think I've arrived because I have this. And the this could be a possession. And again, the CSB focuses on that. It could be a possession. I have this car finally. Ha <laughs> I've made it. I have this house finally. We live in this neighborhood. I've arrived. It could also be though a grade, I got this grade in this class. Ha-ha, I've arrived. I have this degree, right? Or I have this second degree or third degree. See, now look, ha-ha, I've arrived. Or I have this financial uh, account in my balance or a balance in my account. I've got this amount of money. Okay, I've finally made it, right? And so you kind of might think I've got it figured out and these are signs that I've got it figured out to the world. And John says, just be careful because again, that's not from God. This idea that your identity is tied to what you own I mean, we sang the song today, right? But uh, my worth is not in what I own. It's not about achievement. Your identity, students, your identity is not found in your grades. Grades can be a helpful tool to make sure that we're stewarding well our time. But listen, you are not determined. God's love for you is not tied to how well you perform in school. God's love for you is not tied to or determined by how well you perform at work or how many kids you have. Or, again, how big your retirement account is, all of that. It's that, that baseless arrogance. If I've got this, I've arrived, right? 
John says, no, no, that's not from the Father. And this is where we see the warning is to be seeking satisfaction in the things. Don't love the wrong thing, John says. Don't love the wrong thing. Why? Well, not only are they not from God, but they, they won't last. Watch verse 17. And, okay, those things are not from the Father, they're from the world. And, verse 17, and the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. There's a contrast here. All this stuff, the chase of all the stuff, the appetite chase, the advertising chase, the uh, life achievement chase, all these things that everybody's running after to try to find fulfillment in, all that stuff, John says, that stuff is passing away. It will not last. The lie is, in the garden with Satan, the lie is, eat the fruit. It will, it will bring you what you want, ultimate satisfaction. It will not. These things will not ultimately bring us satisfaction, and they are already on the way out. You talk about a losing battle, chasing trends. I mean, you're guaranteed to lose if you try to seek fulfillment in the things we own, right, in our status in the community, right, or just by chasing our appetites. Like, it's not going to work. Those things, he says, they are passing away. Well, what does that mean? The world with its lust is passing away. It means in light of Jesus' incarnation— his death and his resurrection, right? because Jesus came and lived on our behalf and died and rose again, right? now we're off to the races, which means we are looking for his return and we're looking for the age to come and that's it. So the rest of this stuff, it is on its way out. Okay? We're in the fourth quarter of this game, okay? and that's the losing team. That's what he's saying. This, it's, you don't want to get caught up. You don't want to get caught up in this because it's passing away. In contrast, though, the world and its lusts are passing away, but in contrast, and then he, like if I was writing this, I would have said the one who loves God will remain forever, or remains forever. But that's not what the Holy Spirit inspired John to write. He says, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Now, don't get sideways on me. This is not teaching work salvation. He's not saying if you do God's will, then you get in. You know what he's saying? If you don't love the world, do not love the world or the things in the world. He says, if you don't love the world and you love God, you will do his will. It's not, hey, I know God, I can do whatever I want, Gnosticism. John says, brothers and sisters, if we really know God, we are forgiven of our sins. We have spiritual strength. His word dwells in us. We have victory over Satan. Therefore, love him and do his will. You know what that means? That means as a Christian, we are aware that God has given us marching orders. Students, you have marching orders at school for how you interact with your friends and how you behave in class and how you respond to teachers, how you do your work. Uh, moms and dads, we have marching orders for our marriages and our parenting where God says, this is how you are called to function in your marriage. This is how you are called to live as a parent, as a mom or a dad, how you should relate to your children. Singles, God's given us marching orders for singleness. This is how we are to honor God with our behavior as singles and how we are to live in light of that, that gift of singleness and use our time and energy for his glory and not to squander it, not to waste it. 
getting into retirement. God has a plan for us for how we should approach retirement, how we can glorify him. I mean, you name the situation and God has a will for you in it. He has a desire for you in it of how you can honor him in that moment. The question is, do you love him? Or do you love the stuff? Because that's what's going to make the difference between choosing to do the will of God or not. This stuff, the lust, the world and its lust are passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. You know, oftentimes we we evaluate our priorities based on, you know, what's going to last. You know, we want to buy, I was going to, we were going to get a, a cooler, I think last year in the summer, we were thinking about getting a cooler. You know, they have those Yeti coolers that cost $1 billion. And um, why do these things cost so much? Because that thing could be launched into space, okay, and re-enter the atmosphere, and the stuff in there would not only survive, it would still be cold. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's a serious, you know, technological advancement. And why, why are we interested in that? Because, and then we're like, oh, people that go camping, not us. <laughs> so that's, a, people that go camping, they need, they take meat, and they need their food to last over, you know, a week. I'm like, wow, okay, that's low level of, yeah, we just don't. But, um, but the deal is, it's all about how long will it last. We should invest in what's going to last. John says, don't be fooled. Your appetite's going to tell you that's going to really satisfy me. Or everybody else has it, therefore you should have it, right? Or, hey, guess what? This is what real achievement looks like. If you get this job and have this grade and get these grades and have you know, this house, then you've really finally made it. All that, there's going to be a temptation there. And John says, that stuff is already on its way out. Don't buy skinny jeans anymore. <laughs> He's like, they're gone. That ship has sailed. It's over. What's not going out of style? Yeah. What's not going out of style? Loving God by doing his will. That one remains forever. It never gets old. That, that is what we will enjoy for eternity. And so John says, listen, you have this in Christ. Don't be fooled. Don't love the wrong thing. Now, how do we know what we love? How do we know what we love? What do we daydream about or obsess over? What do we spend our free time and money chasing after? Uh, what do we get angry or bitter if we don't get? Like that kind of stuff. And what are we jealous over? What do we, what do we covet? What are we chasing? That's going to tell you what you love. And you just might ask the question, do I love the world or the things or do I love God? And if I don't, what do I need to do about it? Now, you'll also, note, you'll also note that there's certainly a recognition here that God's creation is not faulty. So some of these things over here that we've been talking about, they are good gifts. A good job is a good gift. Good grades are a good thing, right? All, these are provisions. Good food is a gift from God, but it is not meant to be worshipped or treated as our ultimate end for satisfaction. And so we honor God by loving Him, and then when we experience a blessing— thanking him for it. You know, it's called rightly ordering the world. Like we understand, wow, this is a blessed gift. You, know, you think about a great Thanksgiving meal with your family gathered, you know, and you go, wow, thank you, Lord, for this gift. Because I don't find my, my, uh, my fulfillment or my sustenance or my satisfaction in the meal, Lord, I find it in you. Thank you for giving it to me. And you know what? Regularly, it's good to just say no to those desires. Not because you have to, because it's just a good reminder to say, you know what? These don't satisfy me. That's what the discipline of fasting is all about in the Christian life. I say no to something because it's not my God. 
And I can survive without coffee. I can survive a day without food, okay? But I can't survive a day without God. And so I'm not going to be into this stuff, which is passing away and chasing after it like everybody else is. No, I'm going to be the one who remains, which means I'm going to do the will of God. Why? Because I love him, not the world. Don't love the wrong thing. When it comes to the, the world and its lust passing away versus the one who remains, you really can't do better on this than, than the quote from my friend Jim Elliott, who gave his life uh, seeking to convert um, the Aka people group down in the uh, Amazon jungle in Ecuador. But you remember Jim Elliott said this, and this is probably his most famous quote, and it, there's a reason, right? He said, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what I like about that is this recognition that this stuff that people chase, that we often chase, we can't keep it anyway. It's not going to solve the problem. But this love for God that leads to life transformation, this remains forever. You don't lose that. You don't lose that blessing. You know, the Dutch East India Company was founded in 1602. It was the first international company And it was the first international company to ever sell stock. It was immediately profitable for its investors. In its early years, the return was 18% per year. If you know anything about investing, that's great. That's outstanding. And the Dutch East India Company was involved in getting uh, the spice trade from Asia, bringing it to Europe. That was their deal. That was formed in 1602. By 1669, 67 years later, they had 150 merchant ships traveling back and forth, bringing goods back and forth. They had 40 warships to protect the merchant ships. They had 50,000 employees and a 10,000 soldier army, private army, to protect this trade. I mean, this, this was an extremely valuable company. By 1669, you know what your year, yearly return was for an investor in the Dutch India, East India Trading Company? A 40% return in, in 1669. 40% return, which is like crazy. It's just such, I mean, talk about, wow, sure deal. Invest there. Time went, time went on. Circumstances changed. The Dutch had a little conflict with the English, amongst others. Global circumstances changed. It started to decline. And by the end of the year 1800, right, on December 31st, the Dutch East India Company ceased to exist, having exactly zero assets and not a penny of market value. If you ask anybody... In the 17th century, is your investment here a good thing? They would say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is going to be great. Oh, yeah, this is the money. This is what's going to sell. It's a sure bet. This is going to make it. Everybody's doing it, man. Everybody's jumping in. Get in. 40% returns. Come on. 150 years later, it was gone. The lie is from Satan that, you know what? You'll be happy if you get in here. Invest in this. It's the money. It's, it's the, the, the fashion it's the diet. It's the, it's the achievement. This is going to satisfy you. And I'll tell you what, there will come a day when it has zero market value. But the one who loves God, who does his will, that's the one who remains forever. The fact is, we are called not to love the world, but to love God. 
May we be people who don't love the wrong thing. Please bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Um, So much encouragement here for us, Lord, and yet also a great challenge to be careful about our relationship with the world. Lord, there's a lot here to apply. We ask for your help in seeing clearly how we are individually tempted to worldliness. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be aware of times when the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and a a baseless arrogance, consumer uh, haughtiness, whatever it is, Lord, we pray that we would be aware when that is is driving our decision-making. Lord, please help us to love you and not the world or the things in the world. Lord, when we experience good gifts in the world, may we recognize that that's just what they are, gifts from you. May we glorify you for them. But Lord, may we recognize that there is no middle ground, that the question is, what will we love? What do we value most? And Lord, you have called us. and You are worthy of loving you. Lord, help us to be those who don't chase what is passing away, but instead love you and therefore do your will. And therefore will remain forever. Lord, we thank you for the confidence we have in the gospel, that we, we know that our forgiveness is not tied to our Uh, performance. But Lord, we also recognize that true knowledge of you should change our lives. So help us to grow in that by your Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.